Hello, dear listeners. Before we get started on this episode of Two Shrinks Pod, we wanted to give you a little heads up. We got really excited talking about social anxiety and chatted for a little longer than what we intended. It goes for 90 minutes, but it's well worth listening to if you want some practical tips on how to manage it. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Hunter Mulcair. And I'm Amy Donaldson. And this is a podcast all about psychology. Do you ever feel uncomfortable in social situations? Worry about what you're going to say? Think you sound stupid or that people will think you're an idiot? Perhaps you notice that you or someone else simply avoids most social interactions. Or doesn't speak much at work, parties, school, sport. You might obsess over embarrassing things you've said after talking to people. Or it could be that chatting to members of the opposite sex or the same sex just freaks you out. Or just simply you get embarrassed easily when talking when others don't seem to. Or you might know someone who is quiet, but really, once you get to know them, is a big personality. You or that person might be suffering from social anxiety, and that's what we're going to talk about on this pod today. This is the second time we've talked about social anxiety on Two Shrinks Pod, Pod 19, way back, Amy, in the halcyon days of 2017. <laughs> we, we, uh, we did a podcast about social anxiety disorder, and that, was, that has been one of the most popular episodes in, according to our downloads. So we've always wanted to return to it with a practical focus, and much like the Reducing Anger pod we recently did, we are going to take you through some practical and theory around social anxiety, how to reduce it, how to manage it, that kind of thing. So, you know, really just taking the first steps you can take if you're going experiencing social anxiety. So social anxiety exists sort of on a spectrum between, you know, being anxious in a couple of social situations to a full-on what we would call social anxiety disorder or, or social phobia. Or it might be that you experience a social anxiety or in just a couple of social situations, but that's really, really intense social anxiety. So, and social anxiety is a really common, really common problem, right? I mean, do you, I don't even know the, the figures off the top of my head. I probably should have looked uh, that up. Just under 5% for women and just under 3 for men. And that's for the social anxiety disorder? Disorder. So that is the acute. Mm. So that would be like 1 in 20, right? Yeah. Um, so, and that's sort of at a disordered level. So, and the, the experiencing social anxiety, the classic one is public speaking. Right? Mm. People don't like that. So it's really, really common. Now, uh, where we are in Melbourne, in Australia, we are all coming out of lockdown so for some people, it's probably been less stressful uh, as many of the day-to-day anxiety-provoking interactions just haven't been there. So a lot of people might actually be experiencing a bit of social anxiety again, like mm. kind of like, oh, uh, like I'm interacting with people again. How do I do this? Or that their social anxiety that hadn't been there has mm. kind of flared up again. Mm. So we're going to introduce you to some strategies uh, and talk about it. Strategy is my favorite word. Uh, <laughs> And I guess introduce to you how psychologists might work with you on social anxiety because we're fairly certain that a lot of people with social anxiety would access or have access to our pod, previous pod, because it's a really private way of 
understanding and thinking about social anxiety. And I think, you know, it shows the power of a podcast. And I think we had a few emails at the time mm. around Yeah, we it. did. So if you're listening, we hope that you are going to find this useful. Uh, if you do have some questions, you can ask us uh, on twoshrinkspod at gmail.com or you could message us on Twitter at twoshrinkspod. Uh, we also have a website, twoshrinkspod.com. So uh, what we really like people to do is rate and review the show. So if you can do that, that would be great. But you know, getting back to the topic at hand, Amy is going to take us through explaining social anxiety. Tell us a bit about it. Okay. So while a lot of us might have social anxiety at different times, like there might be particular things that we get anxious about or we might you know, relive over and over again an awkward interaction at a coffee shop, the, if you're finding that it's getting in the way of your relationships, of work or study that you want to do, friendships, things like that, we'd recommend that you speak to a psychologist about how you're feeling. It can be daunting to go through some of this stuff on your own and so having someone else to guide you can be really helpful. Uh, there's also some great groups out there, which it sounds like an odd way to approach social anxiety, but it's actually really effective. Yeah, what you've actually done there, Amy, is you've suggested two uh, socially threatening things speak to a psychologist or yep. speak to a group of people so and to we, do that you'll have to speak to a receptionist and make a phone call and show up somewhere you don't know and it, it's quite daunting and like also this. like speak to a gp that kind of stuff so so i mean you already you get at the core of mm. why social anxiety can be a problem to resolve exactly yeah because the very way of handling it and accessing help is difficult yeah so tell me let me ask you let me let me ask you about it so how do you know if you've got a client in front of you and they start talking about things what triggers you off thinking that they've got social anxiety some of it's behavioral so i might notice that they have trouble holding eye contact or that they seem nervous when they're meeting me initially also often the things that they're coming to talk to you about are things around interactions it's kind of like you know my relationships aren't working out the way I want or uh, I had I saw someone who really wanted to be a teacher and had done teacher had done a uni course to become a teacher but then wasn't able to apply for any jobs because the idea of standing in front of a class was too daunting and so she was doing data entry because that paid the bills and didn't involve any social interactions so sometimes it can be really clear other times people just describe themselves as shy or kind of awkward and don't really identify it as social anxiety or think that everybody rehearses multiple times when they're in the queue ready to order coffee, how mm. they're going to order coffee. Mm. Uh, it's sort of become part of their life and for a lot of people it starts pretty young. So it's just sort of normal for them until it gets to a point where it gets in the way. Yeah. Yep. I reckon I reckon I've had a couple of clients where they've talked to me about being socially anxious and it's I haven't thought of it initially. Mm. We've definitely had people who say, Oh, you know, I get anxious in these situations and we've had conversations. But I've had a couple of people, one where I had a, a young chap who was telling me he was socially anxious and then just randomly one of those random situations where I was at a same function where he was at and I suddenly saw the social anxiety in him like we, we we both clocked each other and you know we you know we knew that we were both there blah 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 but I in a group 
this person was very different to the way that they presented individually. Mm. And, and I had another patient who I just assumed they were very confident. But yep. then when she was talking about things at work, it was like, oh, you get socially anxious at work, don't mm. you? Yeah. Because one of the ways people can cope is to fill the silence and make sure that, you know, the conversation doesn't stall by keeping on talking. And so that can look like they're really extroverted or yeah. comfortable. Yeah, or that they you know, once they've got to know one person, they they, they feel comfortable or they, mm. they, or they know that they can control the situation. Exactly. So social anxiety has a few components. As with every anxiety disorder, there's a pretty strong physical response. So when you're anxious, you notice things like you might get sweaty, shaky, you have an unsettled stomach, dry mouth, uh, you might stutter, you might go blank and not be able to think of what you want to say. There's a whole bunch of different physical symptoms that we would have all experienced at any any point. But the difference with social anxiety is that it's specifically focused about social situations and the idea that you might be judged or thought of as stupid or ridiculous or whatever it might be. And so it's kind of got a performance element to it when people feel like they're being watched or evaluated. It's usually specific to particular situations it's pretty rare to meet someone who's anxious across absolutely every social situation, but it includes things like speaking in front of a small group, not a big group, or vice versa, going to the toilet in public, eating in front of other people, talking on the phone, writing in public, dating, all sorts of things. But you can have trouble with one of these and then be absolutely fine in all of the others. So mm. you wouldn't necessarily pick up on it. Yep. We'd like to play you a couple of clips to show you what social anxiety can look like. The first clip we've got is from a movie called Eagle versus Shark. And what you will hear is a young woman who's rehearsing what it might be like to be asked out on a date. And she's rehearsing both her part of the conversation and the guy's part of the conversation. Lily, I brought you here today to ask you a very special question. What is it? Well, I've never felt this way about anyone before. Same, but it feels really natural. Yes, same. I feel that too. Now, Lily... Will you be my girlfriend? Yes. Yes, I will. Awesome. You have made me the happiest man in the whole restaurant. I love you. I love you too. So that's a really common aspect of social anxiety is rehearsing things beforehand we mm. amy and i both would like to point out that we're australian and that clip is new zealand like uh, <laughs> someone from new zealand uh if you are not from australia or new zealand you might not have picked that up anyway not that we're it's really obvious to us not that we're socially anxious about the way that we sound um <laughs> ever since we got zinged on school of movies about how no accent. Anyway, um, the clip that I was going to play, uh, the clip that I'm going to play is from a great movie called Adaptation. So what you're about to hear is the main character, Charlie, having dinner with Tilda Swinton, who he's very attracted to in a restaurant. And you're about to hear his inner monologue. My leg hurts. I wonder if it's cancer. There's a bump. I'm starting to sweat. Stop sweating. 
I've got to stop sweating. Can she see it dripping down my forehead? Oh, she looked at my hairline. She thinks I'm bald. She's you think you're great? Oh, wow. Thanks. That's, that's nice to hear. We all just loved the Malkovich script. Thanks. Such Thanks. a unique voice. Boy, I'd love to find a, a portal into your brain. <laughs> Trust me, it's no fun. <laughs> what you don't get in the audio of that is just his physical appearance so he's he's sweating profusely but also he's really hunched over and crossed arms and looking extremely uncomfortable and in researching for the pod it was quite difficult to find a good audio clip because a lot of the way that social anxiety is portrayed is on film is actually through the visual so in Amelie which is a French film Mm. but then also and in Napoleon Dynamite one of the characters, she is very, very anxious and she doesn't say very much. So No, she doesn't. I worked through the movie fast-forwarding to her bits, trying to find something that would categorise it and you sort of get a bit of, of awkwardness but nothing that you could go, yep, that's social anxiety. Is it, is it Deb? Is that the character? Yeah, yeah, with the side pony. You might be listening to all of this and thinking, yeah, that ticks some boxes for me. I get a bit anxious like that. The thing that distinguishes day-to-day social anxiety from something where you might want to go and get some help from a psychologist is how out of proportion your anxiety might be to what the danger is of the situation. So, you know, a lot of people might get jittery before giving a presentation in front of a big crowd, but someone with social anxiety about public speaking might get shaky and sweaty and have trouble speaking when asked a question in a small team meeting with people that they're comfortable with. So you kind of notice notice the difference between you know what a lot of people would be anxious about versus what you might be anxious about the last piece of the puzzle is that because the anxiety is so intense you might avoid the situations altogether like the trainee teacher that I was speaking about or you can use a bunch of safety behaviors to make things easier and we're going to talk a bit more about these safety behaviors you know how they ease our anxiety in the short term but often inadvertently make it worse in the long run So like we've talked about from the outside, you might not know someone's socially anxious. People with social anxiety are worried about being embarrassed, but it doesn't necessarily show that way to others. Plenty of experienced speakers have intense anxiety about speaking in front of a crowd. And if you're socially anxious, this probably surprises you. You assume that competence is related to how anxious you are. Mm. And I think what's, what's interesting, when I was studying, I did a social anxiety group with a bunch of people and a lot of people were anxious about public speaking and we had them sort of do a speech and then we all gave feedback and often they were really competent speakers you know they prepared their content they spoke really well they were engaging but internally they had this running narrative of this is awful no one's interested I sound terrible Mm. why did my voice go like that just on a running loop yeah, yeah. And I think what's interesting is you get people who will present very well, so they give a lecture very, very well and seem incredibly confident and competent. And then you might go up to approach them and they act all really awkwardly. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're really good at the sort of the structured presentation kind of stuff, but the, the, the more free-flowing, random kind of bit or the why are these people talking to me and thinking that I'm amazing? This is not, you know, mm. I've seen that happen on many occasions. So it's when you get that break between their behavior that doesn't seem consistent between the presentation and their, and their small talk or something like that, yeah. you know, that kind of mismatch. And, and a great, there was, you know, there was that reality TV show, Big Brother. Mm-hmm. And what was really, really interesting was 
you would get these individuals who be in the house, particularly the ones that have been in there for the longer, that, and then they come out and some of them would act quite consistent with what, how they were and other, other ones would there be this real mismatch mm. between and, and those were the ones that were really quite socially anxious. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of this stuff you don't pick up unless you're close to someone who has social anxiety. So if you if it's someone that you live with, you know, a partner or a family member, you might notice that they're anxious in the lead up. So, you know, you might see them changing their outfit multiple times or getting snappy with people about running late, asking lots of questions about how you'll get there, where you're going, when things will happen. And so you'll see that bit and it might not necessarily be obvious outside the house or if Mm. you don't have that intimate day-to-day contact. And I mention this because so many people with social anxiety, because they're worried about people judging them, they assume that it's broadcast to the world. And I think, you know, when we play clips, we've picked ones where you can hear it, Mm. but that often it's quite hidden. Yep. Often it's quite personal and that's why it takes quite a while for people to get help a lot of the time yep. because it's internal. Yeah, because the way that people can behave, this safety behavior kind of stuff, can be read as something completely different. So being aloof or being mm. preoccupied or being not easy to talk to or something like that. So that's really, really fascinating. Bit. The other, the other thing I was just going to mention was that being socially anxious or having moments of being socially anxious is a really common thing to talk about in therapy when someone is getting therapy for something else. Mm. So if you don't have to have severe level social anxiety to benefit from talking to a psychologist about it. And in fact, one of the things that I do where I work, which is in a hospital, often my patients will talk to me about feeling anxious about asking their doctors questions. Mm. Can I do that? And so often we will have a conversation around, well, could you just ask that thing or what is it you want to know? Let's clarify what that is. Do you think you could ask that or, okay, I don't feel like comfortable asking that. All right, let's practice that or something like that. Mm. So the being socially anxious is something that is really worth, if you are seeing a therapist, is really worth thinking about raising it because it, it's quite a good problem therapeutically to work on like there's, mm. lot, there's lots of ways you break down break and it, it can down. often make a big difference like the example that you're giving the difference between having information from your doctor yep and not or for other people being able to start a relationship or not you know yep. it can it can get in the way or, or being able to assert yourself with your boss or mm. assert yourself with your team yeah and resolving a problem rather than holding on to it you know, I mean, in, in the medical situation, like I'm talking about patients who want to get information from their oncologist about their cancer. Mm. So it's, it, no, it's not sort of a, not a non-trivial problem. No, <laughs> yeah. no, it's not, not a petty thing. If you excuse the double negative, but yeah. So what we're describing could sound a little bit like being kind of shy or awkward. How do you split shy and awkward from social anxiety so i was looking at these show notes and i'm like do we split being shy and awkward from social anxiety mm, i think so like I, I don't know you tell me well i think they're related concepts and often people have multiple so shy i would describe more as a trait so it's something that's stable over time yep you know it's someone who's cautious and hesitant but it doesn't have the intense fear or worry Mm -hmm. 
But then the awkwardness, I think anybody can be awkward <laughs> at any given time. We've all had awkward moments with other people. And we know that if you don't get a chance to practice interaction, so if you're avoiding things because you're anxious, yeah. then you're more likely to be awkward because you haven't kind of built those skills. Yeah. So it's more about being uncomfortable, not fearful. Yeah, I guess what you're talking about there is like the difference between being shy and being having social anxiety disorder. Mm. So sort of what you're so, saying. So me in uni... Uh, responding to the person at the juice place saying, hi, how are you? And me saying banana smoothie, please, is an awkward interaction. Me remembering that 16 years later <laughs> is social anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I guess I guess that really what we're kind of talking about is that you can be shy and that's sort of a sort of more trait-like, so trait or tray like uh, so that sort of a consistent part of your personality versus mm. that sort of more acute you can be specifically socially anxious about certain circumstances but then also you can have the a full-blown spectrum like a full-blown disorder of social anxiety where it's really 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 problematic versus just mm. kind of like there's a couple of things that you get anxious about that kind yeah. of stuff i mean i think being shy and being awkward is fertile breeding ground for social anxiety. I'm not... Absolutely. Yeah. You, you can hear my sort of... Oh, is there really a difference? I don't know. But... Well, I think because you can have any one of those without necessarily having social anxiety is where I think it's different. Mm. So, I mean, I would say that someone shy is socially anxious. Like, that's what I would have said. You reckon? Yeah. I don't know. I think it's missing the fear. <laughs> This is what psychologists spend decades arguing oh, about. If you've done your thesis on social anxiety and we're getting and and I'm getting it wrong, which is probably <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, but regardless, the way that we understand things as psychologists in the modern era is to do with cognitive models, right? So, if you've done you know Freudian training it would have been all about the eden the superego and all that kind of stuff i was mothers mothers and i was um riling up a psychiatrist that i know she was talking about you know the superego superego and the eden stuff i said do they even really exist (laughs) anyway so cognitive model so cognitive cognition so that's thoughts so what i'm going to do is i'm going to break down a model of it Bear with us. Hopefully, it makes some sense, right? And what we'll do is we will actually post an image of this model that hopefully makes it a bit clearer for you or so that Mm. you can go and look at. So you can just check out the show notes and there'll be a link there. What we think about, so, is a couple of boxes with arrows joining them, right? So we have a situation. We have your thoughts or your, what I call is your reaction. This links to your action or behavior and in particular what we're thinking about is your safety behaviors and then your physiological anxiety symptoms and then there's a big part of this that sort of sits in the middle of that which is that you have a intense focus either on yourself or you have an intense focus on other people and it all sort of feeds into one another and creates a self-perpetuating cycle yeah so i'm we're going to i'm going to explain that using an example right so because that's probably not making that much sense to you right (laughs) You're in a social situation, Amy, that makes mm-hmm. you anxious. You're out to dinner with your friends and you know you have to order 
waitresses coming around. Mm-hmm. And so this is pre-COVID, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what uh, is this? <laughs> what is this? It's not just... Look. Who are friends? <laughs> what do you, what, what's a restaurant? Um, what's out? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. What's out? So waitresses there, you start to have thoughts about things that could go wrong and what others are going to think of you at the table as the waitress is coming around. So you might start to have thoughts about... What if I can't remember what to order or, or, or what if the waitress forgets to ask me what I want or my friends will think that what I'm ordering is stupid or my friends will be embarrassed of me because like I, I mess up the question or, or make a mistake. Mm. And, and if that happens, then, you know, uh, I won't be out, asked out to dinner again, that kind of thing. Or you, <laughs> like I think I probably would think about like I'm going to knock a glass of water over as I point to the menu or something, you know, like do something embarrassing. That's probably... That's probably more of a hunter thought. We're similar in that one. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And and I'm left-handed, so I'm clumsy. And so there's probably like a, a history of that, right, for me. So mm. I've definitely done clumsy things. Asking mm-hmm. my friends, they will cite many examples. So this is going on in your head, right? So these, these might be thoughts that actually happen or they might actually just be images in your head. So people sometimes will think in thoughts. But really often they kind of just have like an impression of what's going on. And that might actually be an image. Like if you're an Mm. artist or something, you're probably thinking images. So something's going on in you. But probably often what you might actually, the first thing you might notice is that you're getting anxious. And what that means is you're physiologically things start happening. I think for a lot of people, they just go hot. Mm. They go sweaty. You might notice your hands going a bit trembly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Socially, you know, your voice might start to go a bit funny. Mm-hmm. Or you might start to, like when we're anxious, right, our higher order brain functions stop working as well because we're anxious and, and we're focusing on threat. Mm-hmm. And so what that does is it means it makes it hard for us to think clearly. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that is that your mind might go blank or it might yep. be hard to think flexibly. You forget the word for pasta. Yeah. Yep. That's it. I remember trying to say to somebody, oh, you know, that, that, that person with the, with the yellow hair, as like blonde, <laughs> like, but I couldn't, you know, like, so these, these things that starts to happen. Right. And then as that happens, also another thing that can start to happen is your focus of attention starts to shift. So you start to notice that you're having these symptoms and then you might start to like in the adaptation thing, everyone can see how much I'm sweating. Yeah. Right. Or they can see that my hand is shaking. Or are they going to notice that my my hand is shaking? Or are they going to notice that my voice is wavering, right? Mm. So you either start attending very much to yourself or you start attending to, oh, hang on, like they're looking at me. Like, and are they, are they do, do they notice this, that I'm, I'm, I'm effing this up? Mm. And then, so that's all going on. And one of the key things that we, we were talking about, uh, Amy and I were talking about, and we're going to probably bang on about, sorry about it, but is safety behaviors, right? So we do things to make ourselves feel better. Uh, if they miss taking my water, maybe I just won't say anything. Or, or like probably I think for a lot of people, they might be like they would order, you know, they would say like say if they're going to order a steak or something mm. and the person's walked off and they really wanted it rare, but then they would be too awkward to go oh no I, I won't i won't clarify or like i ordered coffee but i really wanted a, a skinny or a soy or whatever it is mm. oh no don't worry i just I won't, I won't worry about it even if they were lactose intolerant or something right yeah. so that would be not asserting yourself or you might do the other thing which is like becoming really over talkative rather than withdrawing you might like approach and 
and try and make a joke and kind of like try and chat with with the, with, with with a waitress I'm thinking of a family member who does things like that and like you know in, which is then in, in cringeworthy right mm. or you might say too loudly or too quickly right oh I'll say that really fast everyone be like well, like what what did you say and um, then you just have to repeat it again and so it just it builds on that yep. anxiety and focus so you can already see like about a thousand sitcoms that have kind of used this as a way of generating laughs or just generating discomfort i find watching that movie adaptation is part of that movie which is just like just excruciating there is actually a whole restaurant scene that's just just awful awful (laughs) i did i I wasn't even i didn't want to put it into the pod because i didn't want to watch it um but you know things like like avoiding eye contact those kinds of things so one of the classic things uh i had a psychologist train us about this he's a chap called mike curios he's very high up in the psychology world these days and mm-hmm. anxiety disorder specialist and he talked about sort of extreme versions of social anxiety where they will someone will kind of bend over and kind of really bad eye contact and kind of and actually act weird because they're believing that if they do that then they're going to avoid people thinking that they're weird but then they create because we do these safe these safety behaviors we then create a problem for ourselves mm. right they make things bearable sort of in the in the moment or they you know or you might sort of just really really rehearse and might only ever order this one thing so like you might limit limit your behavior but often these coping strategies these safety behaviors mean that you you keep your focus on monitoring your own behavior and they make it harder to engage in the social situation mm. If you're trying to not look at anyone, you're more likely to miss when it's your turn as the order comes to you. And then you might then get flustered. Yeah. Speaking loudly can draw attention to you, you know, that kind of thing. I think the thing about safety behaviours, and we'll talk about them more, is that like some of the ones that we've mentioned kind of make sense. Like it makes sense not to look at people if you think they're going to be looking at you in a judgmental way. Some of them don't necessarily make sense. Like yep. I can remember meeting someone years ago who felt like, if they had a pen in their hand to play with, everything was going to be okay. Yeah. But that was across all sorts of situations where actually it wasn't socially usual to have a pen. Yeah. But that, so dropping that safety behavior took a, a fair bit. But also once they realized that, hang on a minute, hanging onto a pen and not having a piece of paper on a tram isn't actually a standard thing or in a bar or somewhere like that. So it can kind of be idiosyncratic. Yeah. And I think that safety behaviors can build up over time Mm. and become sort of something you you have to do, like you're sort of saying, and they can feed in. So you return to this cognitive model, right? These safety behaviors can reinforce the thoughts that we're having. So I can think of an example of someone I knew who was doing their clinical training and they would prepare their session for the psychology session and have like a whole lot of notes for it. Mm. And the problem with that was that this person wasn't trusting their own abilities, right? Mm. And so they were having to keep doing this all the time. And so the supervisor very meanly said, can I have a look at those notes? And then took them off them and said, okay, go see a patient now. <laughs> and there was no time to rewrite them, right? Yep. So, <laughs> and so, so what you, what, what that, intervention would be is to try and expose someone's images and thoughts about themselves and kind of getting them to trust themselves so so disputing Mm. the thing of like you know i can only do this thing if i've got that thing if Mm. that makes sense yeah 
one of the things that you want to do as a psychologist is try to mess up this system a little bit, right? Mm. And trying to change someone's focus. So if someone's like really internally focused about, you know, when they're getting anxious, you might wanting to start to get them say, all right, so when other people are ordering, then you need to listen to what's going on or start to train them up to do those kind of stuff. So what we're going to do is we're going to, break down some of this stuff just a little bit more detail and then we're going to get to how we might treat or how you the listener might be able to improve your own anxiety or that kind of thing uh amy so do you want to tell us a little bit about anxiety what it feels like yeah so we're going to go back to basics with this one a little bit like when we talked about anger last time we thought that it would be good to actually have a bit of a chat about what it feels like physically because it's something that we're not taught more broadly. No one says to you, this is what anxiety feels like. And sometimes we can confuse it for other other things. So like anger, it signifies that there's something wrong, but the focus is on something being dangerous and our body trying to sort of prepare itself for protection, you know, to run away, to say something. (laughs) Amy's cat's just stood up and then put a tail almost right in their face um yeah, anyway yep curled back around and she's she's happy again yep that's yep it. so i'm gonna put it back to you hunter yep. what do you notice when you're anxious physically uh what do i notice i probably get a little bit restless maybe a little bit like if i'm sitting down and i'm, I'm thinking about saying something in a meeting and i'm anxious you know my legs might sort of get a little bit restless or i might start jiggling my leg Certainly my heart rate would go up. I might get a little bit hot if I start to get embarrassed. It would be cheeks red, that Mm. kind of thing. Those would be the kind of common things Mm -hmm. for me, I reckon. Yep. Yeah, maybe tummy feel a bit yuck. Yeah, yeah, I certainly get that one and I get shaky. My hands go. Yeah, and I I might look a little bit more intense or a little bit more like paradoxically like... like Focused? Focused, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you can kind of get from Hunter's description that feeling of preparing himself for something. That's what anxiety is about. It's about getting your body ready to respond. Orgasm for you? Uh, for me, shaky, shaky hands, yep. restless legs, but I don't, I don't move them. I just feel them. Yep. <laughs> Upset stomach and my voice wavers. I used to have quite intense anxiety about public speaking. And I can remember doing a very important presentation for my honours thesis where I sweated so profusely and my face went bright red, my glasses fogged up, my fringe stuck to my forehead. It was awful. Now, these days, I'm okay with public speaking, but yeah, it used to be, it used to be quite intense. So yeah, I think it's, it's one of those things where I'm glad that it's shifted and that it gives me confidence that things can shift for people because I wouldn't have thought that that young woman could then <laughs> or even host a podcast. Yeah. That that just seems completely unrealistic. Well, I don't know. I, I, I edit you to make you sound so much better than you normally do. So. And, I, and we do this via an audio medium so you can't see how profusely I'm sweating right now. <laughs> Actually, I think but. I edit myself more than you. Anyway. <laughs> So the reason why it's helpful to understand this stuff is that if you can notice it, if you can pick up on those early hints that you're starting to feel unsettled, then you can respond. Yeah. So drinking, yeah. (laughs) Just drinking alcohol. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Self-medicating is the first step. That's it. (laughs) Anxiety often is about the lead up. You know, you're getting ready for the bad 
thing that you think will happen. So, you know, you're getting ready to go to a party that you're anxious about. You're preparing your notes for a talk. You're on your way to a work meeting, whatever mm. it might be. Yep. So knowing when it's at the worst for you is quite helpful because for a lot of people, it increases in the lead up in that when you first arrive somewhere or when you, when you first step mm. on stage to speak or whatever it might be. But then it reduces over time. And so that can help you plan. If you know that it's the worst at the beginning, you can put in some strategies and start to try and extend the time that you stay in a situation and feel it drop, which then builds your confidence of, I can actually do this. Or, or it just helps to reduce the amount of time you're anxious, right? So what you're really calling that is like that's anticipatory anxiety. Mm-hmm. So if I was anxious before, say, giving a conference talk, Mm. what would you, it's the morning of the conference talk and I've got to give it sort of 11.30 or something and it's like nine. What mm-hmm. what, what are the strategies, Amy? <laughs> I think you've got to play around with what works for you. But in general, something that's soothing or relaxing. Yeah. I think people often when they're anxious forget to cover the basics like eating, taking their time, making sure that they've got what they need. There's sort of a lot of hurried energy mm rushing out the door. I think distraction can play a great part if you're not having to do something before an event happening. Mm. You know, if you don't have to go and have a, a meeting before your presentation at eleven thirty, doing something that's mm. enjoyable mm. and distracting can sometimes get you through, yeah, through that portion. It it is interesting, I think, with a lot of social performance things that we have to do as individuals in society, often there'll be a big Mm. pause before it so yeah. giving us ready to go out at night getting ready to go out at night uh, the thing i was thinking about was giving a speech at a party or at a wedding mm-hmm. you might have a lot of time to think mm. about it and dwell on it and so or a conference thing i was thinking you know, mm. that's i've done the academic thing and it's not appropriate just to jump up and say what you need to say right at that moment and get it over and done with well no you can't because you're you're in a queue so yeah. but so, you know, the filling time, like I went to a conference and, you know, just, you know, learning how to fill that time so that you, you know, the worst thing to do would be to over-prepare, mm. you know, like, so that's that getting back to that focus thing, mm. of, you know, thinking about what you're going to say, thinking about what you're going to say. If that's what goes on for you, it's like noticing, oh, hang on, when I get anxious, I over-prepare and I start to think about that. That's a sign that you need to go and distract. Yeah. Right. Because that you need to go. I, I I need to look at this once or twice, and then I need to stop looking at it, mm. and deliberately pushing yourself and your attention away. You can prepare without over preparing for a lot of these things. So, like in terms of preparing for a conference, I've seen quite a few academics show up with eight USB sticks because they're worried about whether they'll have their presentation with them. Yep. Six is Probably fine. <laughs> Having five is enough. (laughs) Yeah. But like you can, it doesn't mean stop all preparation, don't write your speech. It it means going, okay, well, I've actually done all I can do on this and now I need to put it aside. And and often you'll do better with a calmer sort of resting state Mm. and less of that in-depth going over it than what you will if you sat and rehearsed it. Yeah, and I think I think that's actually a good thing to get to is to think about you might actually have a level which you can say, all right, well, I've done as much as I can do 
and I'm going to stop or think about it. It's like, all right, well, what is the level at which I can say to myself, I've done as much as I can and I'm mm. going to stop. And then that level might actually be six USBs. That's, mm. that's too, that seems crazy really. Yeah. But, you know, if that helps you get to the point where you need to stop, then, you know, that's probably okay. But yeah. that, that then gives you freedom for a bit, you know, that mm. kind of like, because that's, you know, like, is that really a big deal? I don't know, but... Yeah, for other people, it's not so much the anticipation. It's the post-event kind of processing. The little bit like our anger episode, the running over things again and again and going, oh, my God, I can't believe that I said that thing. Post, post-match review. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's on a loop and it doesn't stop and, you know, you're up all night thinking about it and, yeah. Yeah, so I think that. I think social anxiety is one of those things that really can hit people in the middle of the night. Mm, <laughs> yeah, and there's so many there's so many memes out there about you know you trying to get to sleep and then the thought of what you did in grade three popping up in your head. I think it's a really relatable issue that we just don't let go of these little moments of embarrassment. Or... So, so as you said that, I had a memory that just popped into my head that I'm not talking about. That <laughs> I, I think it was Mr. Hall. He was our science teacher, and we had a holding our breath competition in grade three science which when you think about it's like is that really a science thing like what's going (laughs) on there and so we had to like hold our breath and i think put your hand up when you run out of breath or whatever right Mm -hmm. as you gasp for you know you would tell you the time and i think i was just hot like i wasn't breathing in or out but i just had my mouth open and then he like told me off in front of everybody it's like oh sorry yep yeah and it sits with you in that sort of gut (laughs) Embarrassment. Thanks, like, thanks, buddy. Anyway. That's your four AM. No, I've not thought about that. <laughs> I've not thought about that for a very long time. Anyway, yeah. So if you know that, then you can prepare for that period. Mm. It, it's a waste of your energy to prepare for the anticipation if actually, when you get anxious, is the after after effect. So it's useful to kind of see how you feel, check in with how you feel, and notice whether it's usually in those moments or when it's actually happening. So underlying all of the physical feelings, there's usually a bunch of thoughts and core beliefs. What are the main ones? So this is getting back to that cognitive model that we were talking about, right? We have, if you want to think about it, so we have thoughts in the moment about Mm -hmm. stuff, but we have what we kind of call core beliefs or metacognitions, things like that, that So there's a reason that you as a person will often think anxiously in a particular kind of way about Mm. particular things and that other people won't, right? And they will have different reactions, right? And these are to do with kind of more core or central kinds of beliefs about yourself or beliefs about the world or beliefs about the future. Mm. So these are implicit for us, I think would be the way that you would think about them we're often not consciously aware of them if you do a thing called the downward arrow technique with people then you can get to that that's that's sort of a series of questions where you sort of say oh you know if that happened what would be bad about that and then the person says this thing and you say okay well if that was true what would that say about you and then say oh well you know blah 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 and then you go okay well if that was true what would be bad about that and you kind of you keep pushing down until you kind of get to a core often quite upsetting belief Mm. it's often 
people who have that done to them, they don't particularly enjoy that experience, but no. it's very therapeutic. The common beliefs about ourselves will be, you know, there's something unacceptable about me. I'm not lovable. I'm unlovable. I'm not good enough. I sound stupid when I speak or, you know, I mm. shouldn't get angry or getting angry is bad or something like that. So the, Or it'd be about other people, which is they're going to judge me. Other people are going to judge me uh, mm. or other people will leave me. They can't be trusted. They'll hurt mm. me. These things, you might not need to necessarily address these per se in dealing with a social anxiety problem. If it was more severe, you probably would mm. over time. So what we're going to talk about over as we get to the idea about changing things is changing our behavior. And when we change our behavior, what ends up happening is we change or we challenge our thoughts. Mm. And so there's two ways to do this with a, with a person, which is when we want to challenge our anxious thoughts, we can do it in session, discussing it with somebody and then cognitively challenge them. So, so Amy, what would be, using that restaurant example before, like what would be a anxious thought that might come up for someone? If I don't know what to order, everyone will laugh at me. Okay. The way you would challenge that would be say, well, like, is that true? Has that ever happened to you? Right? So that would be testing out, well, actually, what's the likelihood of that? And if they, if someone said yes, right, then you would say, well, is that a big deal? Mm. Like, how big a deal would that actually be? Now, someone might go, oh, no, that would be really awful. He's like, yeah, sure. But have you ever seen anyone else that happen to? Mm. Uh, what did you think of them? Oh, I, you know, we laughed, but I didn't really think about it ever before, like afterwards or something like that. So you, that would be like minimizing the impact or so you'd be sort of challenging the thought around how likely is something to happen and then if if it is likely that it's going to happen you'd be sort of getting to assess well would you be able to cope with that would it really be that bad now there might be some cases where things might actually be really 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 bad but you might think about well are there things that you can do to cope with it or you know are you making some errors around your ability to cope with something so just to try and tackle it and things like that does that sort of make mm. sense yeah it does so should we move on to safety behaviors and mm-hmm. and what they are so we, we, we kind of i know we sound like we're probably going backwards and forwards but t- tell us a bit more about safety behaviors it all kind of fits in together yeah there's essentially two types of safety behaviors so the first one is basically avoiding so you might choose not to go to parties You might have your partner order food when you're in a restaurant so you don't have to talk to the waitress. You might choose a job that doesn't require public speaking. Things like that where you avoid the thing that makes you anxious. Mm -hmm. And I think, would you say that drinking? Because social anxiety is often... I reckon that comes in the next category. Yeah. I reckon. Which is controlling the situation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, rehearsing what you're going to say, avoiding eye contact fill the space i reckon that drinking often is people feel like it then gives them more confidence Mm -hmm. or it takes away some of that social barrier they don't have to explain why they're not drinking yeah they they can put any embarrassment down to oh my god i was so drunk yeah well it might be an avoidance way of drinking might be actually getting yourself so drunk that you then can't go to something right exactly or that you're too hungover to go and do something that kind Mm. of thing yeah yeah so you could put it in either one depending on the function of it. Yeah. So, so I was thinking about for probably for me, <laughs> any listener of the pod might have picked up, but <laughs> when I get nervous, I probably talk more mm. and fill the gap. Whereas I, I think you might be the opposite way. I'm the opposite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unless, 
except for particular types of social situations where I might be more, not so much more talkative, but I'll crack more jokes. Yeah. So I'll kind of try and diffuse the tension with a sarcastic comment. Yeah. That sort of that sort of thing. So why are these a problem? So why would withdrawing, Amy, or mm. why would cracking a joke, why why would they be bad? What would be bad about them? Yeah. There's a few there's a few ways that it can get it can get in the way. And I think the thing to flag before we talk about why they're a problem is that it's that you might tend to apply them across the board you know having a drink or having a joke getting your partner to order for you every now and then isn't a isn't a huge thing but when it's across the board and it gets in the way of you engaging in the world in the way you want to Mm -hmm. that's where it's an issue they mean that you don't learn that you can survive the anxiety so a little bit about what you were talking about before of these things becoming really entrenched you don't get to see whether you could have coped in a different way whether you could have gone to that dinner party and stayed sober, whether you could have had an interaction with someone where you weren't cutting the tension with jokes. They also perpetuate the anxiety. So if we're scared of something and we keep avoiding it, then the idea of doing that thing becomes more and more scary and like impossible to do. So you see the other one that a lot of people would have had would have been talking to the handsome guy or the pretty girl. Mm, Yep. And and avoiding that and then Mm. never really experiencing whether they can do it or not. Yeah, exactly. What that would actually be like. Yeah. It also directs your focus to what you're trying to overcome. So if you're trying to feel less anxious, less foolish, whatever, in a social situation, monitoring your own behavior can increase your anxiety because you're more likely to notice little mistakes that we all do all of the time Mm. and then get stuck on them. You know, you're more likely to notice when you mispronounce a word and then find yourself thinking over and over again, I can't believe I said that word that way, rather than moving forward with it. Yeah. It can also influence how other people see you. So you mentioned before about coming across as kind of aloof, Mm. and that's a pretty common one Mm. in that if you're constantly monitoring what's going on in your head or what's going on around you, you're not very responsive to what other people are saying. Mm. You know, if you're trying to make sure that you're doing the right thing, quote unquote, you know, responding in the right way, drinking your drink in the right way, eating in the right way, whatever it might be, you might miss those things in the conversation that give you an opportunity to interact in a genuine way. Mm. And people might think that you're not interested. Yeah. Or, or you might have a whole lot of rules about the way in which you should act. Mm. And then your natural personality doesn't come out, right? Mm. And so people then find it hard to get to know you. Mm. And then Uh, they pull back and you go, well, see, I knew that they wouldn't like me. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. So, or it reinforces that you actually have to act a certain way. Mm, You always have to, you follow these rules and then that, you will then know how the conversation will go. So I had someone, I knew someone who was afraid of ordering the type of hot drink she would like at mm. the hospital in the ward rounds, right? And yep. does it really matter whether it's a green tea or a, a chai or a latte or whatever it is? But, you know, that's a kind of a really common thing of like, well, you know, I have to order this, you know, I have to do this kind of thing and then that way I can get, I know how to control the conversation or I don't draw attention to myself. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. And what's interesting with safety behaviours is people, they're really subtle. So people mm. might only direct conversation to topics that they feel comfortable talking about. 
So nothing personal or mm. only personal stuff and nothing work. And, mm. and you might not, unless you really know the person, or you, and you might not even realise that you do it yourself, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that sort of, we're going to talk about the self and other focus, but it plays out in that as well. Like you might only, you know, you might deflect the conversation back to other people the entire time. So they never actually get to know you because you're asking so many questions about them. Or it might be that you... And then, and then they might find you exhausting because they're exhausted yeah. talking to you because they've exactly. talked about themselves so much. Yeah. 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 Or you might fill the space and be really loud and out there and then people find that overwhelming or feel like they haven't had any room. Mm. So it can really, it feels like it's solving the problem in the moment, but it over time it tends well, not to be well, so but, then, but then I think it gets back to those core beliefs and those thoughts, right, which you, mm. that we were talking about, which is say if you, you're worried that people don't like you and so one of the things you do is amp up right Mm -hmm. to fill the gap make the jokes whatever then you will actually start to get because you're going to be hyper vigilant monitoring other people and how Mm. it's all going then other people are going to have a reaction to you and Mm. that reaction you're going to pick up on and then you're probably going to interpret and you might actually be interpreting it correctly which is they're they're tired of talking to me and then you're going to then misinterpret that as there's something wrong with me when really actually maybe there's a, a way in which you've contributed to that. Mm. So if you're socially anxious, what we're not saying is that you are unlovable or no. that you that people judge you poorly, right, and that you're to blame for that. It's mm. more that, that the things that you do contribute to the difficulties that you've got and you can get control of it by changing these up right mm. so, so can i give you an example i, I think yep. i think i'm not sure if i've talked about it in the pod before but i've certainly talked about it with my patients before but you know i work with a lot of doctors and mm. some of these some of these people are extremely smart and you know being a psychologist in a hospital you can feel a little bit like a fish out of water <laughs> right yep. and so i think i caught myself earlier on often just going and chatting to the doctors when they were in clinic Mm-hmm. And I've after a while, I kind of picked up or I thought, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I should do it, just chat to them at a particular time. And suddenly I realized that my anxiety about talking to the doctors and, and my relationships with the doctors dropped considerably. And I thought about that and I thought, well, and I suddenly realized that maybe I was going to check in and saying hello and checking in to see if they thought I was okay or something. I don't know mm. what was going on in my head. And... But they were probably going, you know, like, I'm really, really busy. <laughs> like, yeah. why is this guy chatting to me and they're just being polite? And then I was interpreting that as... as they don't some, want to talk to me. They don't want to talk to me, right? So, so it was feeding that anxiety that I had mm. about being a fish out of water. But when I stopped doing that, a lot of that anxiety just went away. Mm. So I guess what Amy and I are talking about is that you want to experiment in changing these things and experiment is a is a really key word so i guess this section really now is going to talk a little bit about how how can you focus what can you do to change your social anxiety right and so really how can we shift this just kind of continuing on that 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 thing is trying to figure out what it is that you do in a situation and really really simply how can you do it differently Mm. 
right? Now, that is complicated. And, you know, there's this idea of sort of get rid of your safety behaviors and, and your anxiety will go away. Yeah, but also that's going to be really hard mm. <laughs> in some cases. So kind of got to test it out and see how it goes and sort of dip your toe in the water. Yep. Yep. And if you suffer from social anxiety, you might not have a good gauge about a whole lot of this stuff. It's important to be cautious with it and planned, right? So a couple of things that kind of come to mind, Amy. So I gave a talk at a conference and I recorded it, just digital recorder. You know, I do the podcast and I had a digital recorder (laughs) and blah, blah, blah. I thought, I'll record it, right, and sort of see how I sounded. I gave the talk and I ended the talk and I was like, I fucked that. Mm. But I was like, oh, that was terrible. And a colleague was sitting in the audience and she's like, that was really great. You know, what are you talking about? That was fine. It's fine. It's fine. I'm like, whatever. I'm not like, there's no way in hell you can convince me that was. Mm. I did a terrible job. You're just being polite. Yep. Blah, 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 blah. Right. And then I listened back to it and it was really, really eye-opening. To kind of go, oh, okay, it just sounded like a normal talk. Mm. Like, and my interpretation of a couple of the bits where I thought I'd stuffed it, mm. you know, I could hear like maybe a couple of little bits that, you know, I was like, oh, maybe that wasn't as quite as, you know, the 100% I was going for in this talk. Yeah. But it was... There was nothing wrong with it. It, was, it just sounded like a conference talk. Like mm. it, it was, you know, and, 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 a, and, a, and a good one. Mm. Like as in, as it good as in it hit all the marks that it needed to hit. Like, mm. Rather than sort of going, you know, I'm amazing. Like, but just like, is in like, it just, it just hit what it needed to hit. So getting honest feedback from someone that you know, mm. or if you don't feel confident with that or you don't have that, then record it and listen back to it or watch yourself do it and give yourself that feedback right now that (laughs) and i can say as someone who's edited all these pods like listening back to yourself is not always that pleasant right but it, it does teach you some stuff around what you sound like what you're doing and can give you ideas about what you can improve right and so this is a really important bit and this is something that's probably going to give people who are socially anxious some anxiety but if you're socially anxious it's quite likely that you need some skills in what we would call micro skills of social interaction Mm. because you might not actually be good at say small talk Mm. because you get flooded with anxiety and so you're not used to doing it because you might avoid it yeah you don't have the practice that someone who's comfortable with it will have. Yep. Mm. Yep. And when you get anxious, it's really hard to think clearly, Mm. right? So there's a lot of instances in the medical and psychology world where you have to ask things that are potentially anxiety-provoking for you. And what ends up happening in your clinical training and your day-to-day job is that you just have asked them so many times that that anxiety has gone away, right? Because mm. you've just, you've done it. So the classic one for us would be asking about suicide. So yeah. are you feeling suicidal? Uh, have you been thinking about hurting yourself? Have you been thinking about harming yourself? Blah, blah, mm. blah. And if you're not used to asking those questions and knowing what to do with those answers, then that can be a bit, that, that can be nerve wracking, right? Mm. But 
don't know about you, but I've asked that question so many times. So like, many times. That's it. it doesn't worry me at all. Like, Yeah, you lose count of how many yeah. times you've asked that question. But, but to, to, give, like, to give you another occupational thing, like so a pilot flies a lot and mm. so if they hit turbulence, they know what to do without really worrying because they just kind mm. of like it's procedural. Yeah. Right? Or like soldiers, they shoot their guns a lot. And so if they get into a a firefight, they can shoot their gun accurately without sort of really having to think about it. So it become, mm. sort of becomes a more practice thing. And social interaction, there's an element of practice. And so usually that's about having options about what to say. So mm. in the example that you, the New Zealand example we were talking about before, mm. that, that person's practicing what's going on. The problem with that is, and I mean, I don't know the rest of that scene, but what you'd want to do is if you're going to practice social interaction, you need to practice multiple outcomes. Mm. Okay, you're nervous about talking to your boss about something that you didn't like or, or someone mm. in your team, right? So, you know, maybe you're equal, right? So there's like a, and let's practice how that's going to go in, in a way where they respond well, mm. respond neither here nor there, where they respond in an avoidant way, they respond in an aggressive way. Mm. And getting a couple of statements that you can practice saying so you get used to it. Yeah, because yeah, it- the problem is when you get stuck in a way that you think it's going to go and because people are unpredictable they can respond in a whole range of different ways and then you're stuck with the, but your response was supposed to be, yeah, that's fine. (laughs) And you don't know how to respond Yeah, because you've over-rehearsed that one, one potential. Yeah. Or the classic, you know, you're expecting someone to arc up Mm. and they don't and they act in a, in a different way. And then you're like, like, what do I do now? Yeah. Like, yeah, I was ready for a fight. I was ready for a fight and they're acting all smart ass to me. You know, and so learning how to say to somebody, I really don't like the way that you're actually saying that to me. And I'm just wondering if we could get back on track or it might be just actually rehearsing the words that you're going to say when you ask Mm. a question. So, and I've definitely had that conversation with patients about, do you think that maybe you should ask your doctor about that? Or how would you ask your doctor about prognosis or... Mm. Maybe you should bring in a list of questions and then you can say, I've got some questions. Is it okay if I ask them? And then I'll run mm. through them. So you know, there's lots of different ways in which you can do it. And I think with a lot of, I think with a lot of people, it's about just getting the ball rolling. Yeah. Right. And I think uh, Amy's going to laugh at this one, but uh, this idea of accepting that you're probably not going to be perfect at doing it. <laughs> I, do you want to do you want to explain why you're laughing at me with that? I'm I'm laughing because Hunter's not a fan of ACT, which is um, what? acceptance and commitment therapy, which is all about accepting how things are, and yet the amount of times he says that people need to accept different things or learn how to accept how things are would say otherwise. <laughs> yeah, look, I don't know. Maybe we need to have a, 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 a acceptance commitment therapy pod and I can refresh myself. You couldn't do myself. it without your eyes rolling back into your head. Oh, I, look, I disagree, but I think where I come from is that people who are socially anxious have this idea about that social interactions need to be perfect mm. or that that person is such a good 
communicator or so confident and I could never be like that or and so anytime they make some minor mistake they catastrophize right can I um add in with an anecdote yep uh when I think I might have told this anecdote on the pod before so apologies if I have when we're doing social anxiety group first session all set up everybody's sitting there looking looking nervous because you know we're in a group situation I start my introduction about what we're going to do and as I'm doing it I kind of casually lean back and with my hand knock the shelf off the bottom of the whiteboard and it goes clattering to the floor and that moment of me going oh shit what have I done was actually probably the most useful thing in that first session because a lot of people assume that psychologists have it all together or Mm. that we've got our own stuff sorted because we are composed in our sessions for the most part. We don't react with shock when they tell us things that are difficult, never. But a bunch of anxious people seeing me having to bend over and pick up the shelf and and put it back on and continue with my talk (laughs) was actually quite useful for this very thing of going, oh, well, these things happen, on we go. Yeah, and and if you've listened to this pod before, you might notice in this pod we are being very open or much more open about our internal experience. Mm. And that's actually kind of deliberate. And it's not actually something Amy and I discussed pre this pod. No. But when we talk about social anxiety as psychologists, it's really important to normalize this experience because this is, this is a part of the human condition. And I think that the problem with social anxiety and when you have a problem with that a pervasive problem with that is that you feel alone in it Mm. right and because it's embarrassing to talk about and you get embarrassed easily yeah and And i mean the fact is that if we were if people were the other end of the spectrum then that would be a a whole other whole other issue if you didn't care about what people thought about you at all if you're entirely indifferent and just went about Mm. about the day without considering that then you could be quite callous towards other people mm. or it would present in an issue. The fact of the matter is, is that we're all sort of hovering in the middle in various different places yeah. along that spectrum. And it is, it's just part of being a, a person that sometimes you get anxious yeah. about these things. Yeah. yeah. And, and I certainly suffer from social anxiety and so, like certain things that, mm. I th- that I think is quite ridiculous. And then other stuff is like, yeah, put me with a suicidal cancer patient and I'm, I'm, Good to go. Good to go, right? Like, you know, it's sort of, it's quite idiosyncratic. I guess getting back to what I was saying about being perfect and thinking. So, you know, the way that we framed it before is like practice accepting the things won't be perfect. I actually don't think that's act to be perfectly honest. But anyway, um, and I guess the way I think about it is challenging the thought that if you make a mistake that everything is ruined. Mm, that all or nothing. That all or nothing. So I was talking to a friend of mine today about this stuff and she's a, a musician, very successful musician. And I said to her, you know, have you ever played a wrong note on stage? And she's like, oh my God, like all the time. And I'm like, well, does, what happens with that? And she's like, well, you know, did, I said, does anyone notice? And mm. she says, well, no, because usually by the time that anyone's noticed, you've moved on to the next chord or the band's kept thinking. And you might, as a musician, think about it all night <laughs> for the rest of the gig or whatever right but but no, one else has. but no one else has and so i think that it's it's realizing that sometimes we do make social errors and they mm. are big and mm. catastrophic or something like that but but for the most part these mistakes don't amount to that much 
And I no, think... they're kind of most of the time, if they're noticed, they're sort of awkward missteps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything yep. that anyone remembers. Yeah, yeah. And I and, and I and I sort of segued into saying, well, I, you know, it's the dance floor scenario. Mm. So that is when you're on a dance floor. Everyone's worrying about how they're dancing and whether they look good dancing and no one's paying attention to how everyone else is dancing. Yeah. Right? And so if you make a mistake dancing and everyone's internally focused, no one's going to notice, right? So if you're kind of getting that logic that we're trying to get at, which is it's okay to kind of stuff up. Hmm. If you are stuffing up a lot, then that probably means you need to practice some micro skills and that's something you can do something about. Hmm. The next thing I was going to talk about is dropping your safety behavior or, or essentially really what I was going to say is whatever it is that you do in a, in a difficult, socially anxious situation, try and do the opposite and mm. see what happens. So the friend I was talking to today about it, she was saying to me that there's a social situation she, she goes to a number of times a week that she often will avoid yeah. if she can, but she experimented by turning up is a bit hard to do now because we all have to wear masks but turning up and smiling versus mm. not smiling and so that's a fairly simple thing making some eye contact and smiling as you move through a, a group right mm. and that's just something small and achievable or you know it might be you know when you're talking to somebody and you notice that you avoid eye contact Maybe try looking at a friend's face when you greet them or something like that and, and see how that feels and see whether you notice something different. If you clench your fists or squeeze your hands together, try releasing your fingers, right? Or if you notice that you're an over-talker, try not to do that, right? Mm. So try pausing for a few seconds before replying. Or if you notice that you just talk about yourself to feel to control the conversation, then you know, think of a question beforehand that you can ask, and then engage in that. So ask more questions. Mm. So so often people listen to the answer. Listen, listen to the answer, mm. and ask them some more questions. Maybe repeat it back. Or if it's the other thing, if you just let them talk, then say, oh, you know, this thing happened to me this day. You know, because often that one's it's a tricky one, and you might go, okay, I'm gonna ask how work's going, and then. You ask that question and then people who are anxious and focused on how the conversation's going will then go, oh shit, now I've got to think of the next question. And they miss hearing how work's going, which often has a clue to a follow-up question. Mm. It often has some opening there mm -hmm. where you can then ask the next thing. And if you're focused on trying to think of another question, you miss, mm -hmm. you miss those mm -hmm. opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Well, you, you miss seeing where that person's at today. Mm. because you're internally focused. Yeah. The final thing I was going to suggest is disclosing to people that you get socially anxious. Mm. That is moving from a place of avoidance to a place of control, right? Mm. So you can, if you explain to somebody, oh, you know, look, I just get a little bit socially anxious in these situations. And if possible, you can then add on the, if you notice that I'm doing that, can you do this for me? Mm. That can be really liberating. I think... It's really liberating to hear if you get socially anxious in some certain situations, ask them, oh, do you get nervous in these situations? Mm. Because 
more often than not, people are going to say, yeah, or I used to. Oh, my God, it was the pits, blah, 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 yeah. blah. And then you go, oh, my God. Like, knowing that someone who you think is really, really competent in a social situation who does get anxious, it's, it's incredibly enlightening and, it and, is. and relieving, isn't it? So Yeah, it is. Yep. The last thing in this segment we wanted to talk about was about family and friends. So family and friends can help someone with social anxiety in that kind of introducing you if you get nervous about approaching people or, you know, helping to bridge some of those things, noticing when things are going on. But they also can inadvertently feed into it. So I'm thinking specifically about close friends, family members, partners who over time become part of the safety behavior in and of itself. So, you know, you might find that someone gets anxious when they're talking to strangers. And so you say hello for them when you enter a restaurant. Or an example that I kept on thinking about as I was preparing this was that I had a close friend who I knew got anxious ordering uh, when we'd go out to dinner or lunch. And I could feel the anxiety and I could notice that they weren't really focusing on the conversation while we had our menus. You know, I could be blathering on about just about anything and sometimes would chuck all sorts of weird things into the conversation if I was in a facetious mood. And they wouldn't notice what it was that I said because they were internally rehearsing. Yeah. So it got to a point where I would then go, well, I'll just order. So when the person, would, like the waitress would come over, I'd go, oh, we'll have such and such and just take that out of the way because it made things more comfortable for me worrying about them and I knew that they were anxious but that didn't actually help to move things along yeah fast forward a little bit and they kind of went okay I want to work on this and so part of what my role in helping with that was just sitting with the fact that I knew that they were anxious until the waitress came over Mm. and that we were both going to just sit there feeling a little bit uncomfortable until they came over they were then going to order, regardless of how long it took. I was just going to sit there and not step in and rescue them. Yeah. And it got easier quite quickly once there was practice. Yep. And yeah, it's sort of, but it's hard to do when you know someone that you care about is anxious and yep. you could do something to stop that. Or if it's not so much about you know that they're anxious, but you're worried about them fucking it up. Mm. <laughs> if I can be blunt, it's like, this is important. Can we get this clear? Yes. I'm, I'm just going to do this and it's going to be faster and easy for everybody. If you're hungry and you just want to get on with it. <laughs> Whatever it is, right? So, you know, yeah, that's really, really interesting. The word or the phrase I was thinking about is secondary gain. So mm. that these, so these things can develop and then that pattern that you're talking about can become reinforced because it then both of you have a role. That means that that family member or that partner or something has a role, right? Mm. And then to take that away can be, you know, the, the family member's like, what do you mean I don't, I, I'm not allowed to do that anymore? Like, that's yeah. what I do in the family. Like, blah, blah, yeah. blah, you know. You know and it's often quite uncomfortable for everybody involved in that transition period while things are shifting. So would you get that with anxious children and mm-hmm. like say a mother or a father who do too much? Yeah. Yeah. Get it all the time. I mean, not, not in every case, but a lot of the time, particularly with things around social anxiety, school refusal is another really common one. So kid will be anxious about going to school and a small thing will come up, which for a lot of kids might mean that they don't particularly want to go to school that day, but they'll go. 
and the parent will go, well, there's there's no way they can go. They're absolutely too sick or they're definitely too anxious to go today. There's that sort of accommodating to oh, okay, help avoid. Yep, yep. And then... So, so with you, that would be the parent then is reinforcing the belief that the child's own belief that they can't do something, right? So that's exactly. actually... So that actually undercuts it, undercuts them, yeah. Yeah. And socially you see similar things like parents will say make excuses for their kids they'll kind of go oh so-and-so doesn't like meeting new people or so-and-so doesn't like doing such and such rather than helping model to them hey how about we go over and meet you know your new kinder friend Mm. Um, and sort of helping support them and scaffolding how they can learn those skills Mm. and again it comes from a position of care of Mm. going well my kid's anxious I don't want them to be anxious I'm going to make the world a safer place for them but it means that they don't get the chance to develop those skills. Yeah, and you're inadvertently teaching them that they can't do something. Mm, they can't cope. Yeah, and I think also you get the other thing, the classic, probably a dad thing, which is, no, you can do it, go and do it. And and so rather than being over-involved and speaking mm. for someone, it's like, no, you just go and do it and not giving any instruction. Yeah, not scaffolding those skills, yeah. not building them up. Yeah. You know, and then that can be really adversive and then create like a, uh, a really strong memory that yeah. then seeds social anxiety later on. Yeah. So many ways to fail as a parent. It's great. <laughs> yep. There so, really is. So the fo- only comfort is that everybody's doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So one of the things we talked about was that, that shift, that, that focus of attention. So mm. this is the internal, like, oh my gosh, I'm sweating so much. Oh, you know, or people can hear my voice. Or it's like that I can see everyone's watching me. Mm. What do we do? How, do? how do we fix that? The very basic thing that comes back to what we've been saying this entire pod, practice. It comes down to not just practicing when you're in a social situation going, oh, hang on a minute, I'm kind of stuck on what's going on in my own head, what's going on for them, but practicing shifting your attention in all different ways. So a lot of what we do with the early parts of treating this in social anxiety is going well can you, when you're getting ready to brush your teeth, can you shift your attention to what's on the top of your bathroom cabinet? Or can you read a boring article and every time your mind wanders, bring it back to focus on that? Because it's a bit of a skill learning how to shift shift your attention. And mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of different ways you can do it. You can, you know, you're standing in line to get a coffee. You can focus on how your feet feel on the floor those times when you notice you're getting anxious and you realize that you've completely lost train of what the conversation is, Mm. you can go, hang on a minute, I'm going to really focus on listening to what that person is saying. And as you practice, it becomes easier to shift between one and the other. Because the problem with this is not that, you know, you're focusing on yourself or you're focusing on the other person. It's that you get stuck on one of those. And so miss half of the picture a lot of the time. Yeah, so there's that distraction I think is, is sort of what you're talking about a little bit. Mm. Yeah. So I mean, I, the, the thing that comes to my mind is counting things. Like mm. It can be, cause that's cognitively active. I remember when I graduated, so when I got my doctorate and for some reason I was really anxious. I don't know what, like why. Um, like the actual graduation. The actual ceremony. graduation. So all I had to do was sit on stage in this funny gown mm. and then walk across the stage, shake a hand get my certificate, walk down thing. But I was just really anxious about a couple of bits of it. And what was clear was there was a there was a woman who stood off to the side of the stage, 
and so each person would move in this really ordered process it was great from, yeah. from where you're sitting on the stage and you then you would stand next to this woman and then they would call and then you would step forward and then they would read out what you'd done and then things would go on from there and what i realized she was doing to me was she was just chatting to me she just chatted to me mm. and then i and it completely like distracted me and then and then I step and then she's like okay now step forward and then she was doing that and she did that with every person so mm. you know and that that just occupied my time so you yeah. know so that would be something you could do say like if you're anxious about something and you're noticing you're anxious like get somebody to say can you ask me questions about something and then so that you have to talk mm. could be something that you could do so that would be yeah yeah what do you do amy if you're noticing you are sweating mm-hmm. uh, or you are you noticing a whole lot of internal physical symptoms that may or may not be visible Right, because that's what happens. Mm. You know, sweat is sweat is a bugger. It is. Um, what if it's sweat, or what if it's less obvious? Well, it depends on the situation. Mm. If social situation, a, maybe so, social. Social. <laughs> that's not helpful. I'm thinking, you know, if you're in a party situation, taking a minute to go outside, have a breather, get some cool air, cool off, is acceptable mm. being on the stage for your graduation and walking off and doing that. Not so much. Not so good. Or you're in a date and then your date says, what's wrong? Aren't you talking properly or something? Yeah. yeah. What are you supposed to do? Yeah. I think that some of it you can acknowledge that you're anxious. Other things is that to sort of settle some of that physiological stuff down. We often forget about the basic kind of anxiety management stuff Mm -hmm. breathing slowly we often get so caught up in going oh my god everybody's noticing that i'm sweating and that i'm shaking and and caught up in that loop that we forget the basic thing of that we can calm our bodies down with some pretty simple things like breathing slowly in and out and that doesn't have to be obvious it doesn't have to be a big dramatic breath in and out but just slowing slowing your breath down yeah we talked about yeah we talked about slowing breathing down and relaxation down on the anchor pod uh, Mm. so you can check that out we won't repeat that here but suffice to say that if you suffer from social anxiety and you do get physiological stuff it's worth practicing relaxation skills that you can then do in the moment Mm. and often there'll be things like having a sip of a cool glass of water will help a lot of people to take the take the temperature down a little bit before they have to go and do a talk or something like that it's interesting distinguishing what what's a safety behavior and what's not yeah and that something like that or breathing actually does have a positive effect in the moment and doesn't get in the way of what you're trying to do yeah i think that's the distinguishing thing yeah look i mean i think these these situations are hard which mm. you know getting nervous and you your mind goes blank and you know you're going to be called on mm. like those things are challenging so i think it's about one part i think for me would be about you know all right let's slow ourselves down physiologically can we breathe can we distract mm. the other thing would be about going all right well your attention might be limited so let's have a think about a couple of short statements mm. right and get yourself going. Is it an appropriate situation? Say, oh, look, I'm just gonna be, my mind's gone a bit blank. Can you get back to me? Or, mm. I, you know, whatever it is. Like, So give yourself a bit of a go. Mm. Yeah. Right. And so this gets back to the idea that this might not go perfectly, but is that really a big deal? 
probably not. So. And I think probably, you know, in a lot of situations where people get anxious, I'm thinking particularly about professional situations, people are often worried about not responding to a question in a meeting or not knowing what to say. And actually it's perfectly fine to say, I'm going to need a minute to think about that. And, or can you check in with someone else? I'm just going to check such and such. It's, it's actually okay to do that sort of thing, to, to buy yourself some thinking, breathing mm. time. And often people don't even consider that that's because you're anxious or you don't know your stuff or whatever it might be. It shows that you're thinking things through. And it's the same in, you know, in a job interview or something like that, taking a pause to breathe before you rush into a response, mm. slowing things down. Yep. And let me tell you, a psychologist, you often get asked questions or there's a situation you're like, I have no idea how to respond to that. And, mm-hmm. and often actually, like what I've learned to do is actually just to label and say, look, actually, I'm not really sure I know the answer to that. Let me just have a mm. think about that. But, yeah, you know, and, my first thoughts, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, can I ask you some questions and, you know, allowing your brain to work? And I think that mm. the idea I think about with this stuff is there's the way in which we would like to be and mm. there's the way in which you are. And you're going to laugh mm. at me again, Amy, and say <laughs> act stuff. But I think it's about realising what, what you're like and then kind of going, well, is that okay? And often people appreciate you being authentic and being yourself more than they do a perfectly presented answer mm. to a question. Ex- often, absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Often that's what people are after. They want a, a real response. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, uh, we've done, what, over 60 pods now and I'm sure we've stuffed some some psychological concepts up along the way at oh, some absolutely. point. And, but it's not because we're perfect about it. It's about that we are giving it a go and Mm. trying to explain stuff and giving people an idea about where to go. I think it's about lowering that expectation Mm. around it. So we're really segueing here into, I guess, exposure. So if you have a problem, like a really significant problem with social anxiety, the bulk of social anxiety treatment will be exposure therapy. So really, in the simplest terms, it's doing the things that you're anxious, right? But with the support, and big caveat, <laughs> flashing yeah. lights, with the support of your therapist in a gradual way, mm. right? So, I mean, and the bulk of most anxiety treatment is uh, exposing yourself to your fear. Mm. And learning, it's the same with and learning, a phobia yep. of spiders, yep. for example. Yeah, learning to, learning to tolerate it learning where your anxiety is telling you a story that's unhelpful, right? Mm. So that, so this is where it gets back to this idea of like, you know, if I make a mistake in a social situation, it will be catastrophic. It's probably not going to be catastrophic most of the time. It might be embarrassing or might be annoying, Mm. but if you never put yourself out there in that situation, then you never get to learn that, Mm. right? But it's important to do it gradually, the idea is that we're most anxious before going to a situation and it slowly drops over time. And when we avoid that, avoid something, we never get to see that pattern, mm. right? You know, the, the first therapy session I did as a, as a trainee, I was more anxious than the patient, like, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh, well, yeah, okay, I've got a session now. I better go off and do that. Like, you mm. know, it, it, it's just a different mindset. It's part of your routine, yeah. your day-to-day. Yeah. So yeah. If, you're so if you have severe social anxiety... Or I would say the other caveat would be that if it's a high, 
high stakes environment and a genuine high stakes environment, mm. then it's important to do exposure with a therapist. But the key, I think, that I would be getting people to do is to try and do things that you can try on a day-to-day basis. You know, if you've got a bit of social anxiety, one of the things that's good about having a therapist to do it with is that the therapist can give feedback about you're jumping too far ahead, Mm -hmm. right? You're trying... That sounds like that's going to be too difficult for you, right? Mm -hmm. If you're anxious of public speaking and and then you register at a big conference to do a presentation, <laughs> that's, yeah. you know, that, that's, you know that's, it's great that you're ambitious, but is that really the best place? It could be setting yourself up for failure or to learn that yep. this is a daunting thing yep. rather than building up your skills. Yeah. So if you, if you feel you can do this on your own, you know, have a think about a situation you get anxious in and breaking into small pieces. So the key that I want you to think, before we work into an example, the key I want you to think about is, with exposure is this is an experiment right Mm. so if you're a scientist and you are researching a problem you do an experiment now it's nice when your experiment goes well but there are countless scientific advances that have happened completely by chance or completely by something going wrong Mm. i think you know penicillin was like mold and they're like oh hang on this, this is working but what we're wanting to do with an experiment is we're wanting to see what happens. And this is why it's important to do it gradually so that the mm-hmm. stakes aren't too high initially and you've got you've built up the skills. Because what you want to see is, okay, I went and spoke to that person. How did it go? What did you notice? Mm-hmm. Now, we're all hoping that, oh, okay, actually, I started talking and it went well, right? Mm-hmm. But you might actually realize that oh, I started talking and I got really sweaty and my attention went to myself. So then you might go, all right, well, the strategies are like what we talked about before about like how do I shift my attention out? Or I noticed that it all went well except for this part of the conversation when they were aggressive or they were asked about me or they talked about a thing I didn't think I knew about or whatever it is and then you can break it down and then you can start Mm. to think about those skills or it could be that you get into that situation and then all the whole lot of the thoughts that you've had a hard time kind of grasping because you've been avoiding them but you know that Mm. you get them you suddenly go oh my gosh you know i I had all these thoughts about that they think i'm an idiot and then so you might have to have some cognitive challenging stuff around those thoughts those things so what you're wanting to do is try and experiment and see how it goes but the key part of exposure is exposing yourself to the situation and learning Mm. that it's not as as dangerous as what you think it is right Mm. which is part of the rationale for doing small steps as well is kind of you want things to be challenging but achievable yeah so that, so that it's not like, oh, I tried this thing and it was a complete failure. Yep. I knew it was going to be. Instead, it's just slowly building it up piece by piece. And often when you're, when you're a psychologist and you're making sort of a list of things with people, they often roll their eyes at you when you kind of go, hang on a minute, but what about that part of that? Or you've described an entire situation like going to parties. Yep. Is it different when it's a group of people you know versus a group of people you don't know versus, you know, yep. you want to be specific yeah, so what, what, <laughs> I can be annoying to my patients because they, I will make them ask me questions. <laughs> they might go, oh, you know, I, I feel silly talking to me about this stuff. And I say, all right, well, why don't you ask me whether it's silly? Mm. 
and and then I'll give them a genuine answer about whatever it is, right? Another thing might be, you know, we, we might do with a therapist or you can do with your friend, it's like we talked about before, is practice small talk. Mm. You can see what it's like and see how it goes and things like mm. that. And there might be some other bits that feed into the anxiety that are not necessarily aware. So you might go, all right, well, I can go to the shop where there's like one person there, but when I'm in a crowd, like a supermarket, mm. I get anxious. So it'd be like, all right, well, can you go to the supermarket when it's less crowded and mm. then build it up, right? Yeah. So, so it's like the skills and getting used to it. So just like the way you would teach someone how to drive, teach someone how to swim. You wouldn't take a, a beginner swimmer out onto a surf beach on, mm. on a rough day for yeah. the first time in the ocean. Like you just wouldn't do it. So yeah. it's the same kind of thing. And, and I guess the final thing to think about is if you are going to be doing exposure, if you're going to change up what your social anxiety is, the, the, the safety behavior, have a think about how you think it's going to go before you go and do it mm. and then compare notes afterwards. And that's really important to not discount how you went. Oh, that was just a fluke, right? Yeah. That would just be nice to me. Or, wow, that was absolutely terrible and I'm never going to go do that again, right? It's mm. like, well, actually, but in my, neither of those situations are you actually learning anything. So mm. so the, the goal, again, exposure is it's an experiment and you're trying to learn about the situation you're not trying to you're not necessarily trying to make it go perfectly no you're trying to sort of check whether your assumptions about how it's going to go yeah fit yeah yeah with all of that we feel like we've been talking for quite a while but we got into it and i think both of us enjoyed airing some of our past experiences <laughs> it's quite anxiety. cathartic i have to say that's yeah. it we're going to take a break and we're going to come back with things we came across see you soon see you soon As we try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see, as it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call laws instead of simple explanations. Wouldn't it be nice to have a live-in masseuse that, you know, you got a massage from any point of the day when you wanted it? Amy. Is it all you had to do was just sort of headbutt them or... Yeah. And then and then they just do what you wanted. Amy's currently patting her cat, listeners. And that's that's the context to that comment. The cat's cat cat was looking is looking appreciative. She's now just like tilted her head back down onto the onto the couch. Sort of yeah. like as if, if she's oh, if I must be patted. Yeah, I guess I'll deal with it. <laughs> this she's is, got a hard life. This is do you reckon cats get socially anxious? We did talk about cat attachment one time. Mm. She gets fearful of some types of people. So you know, maybe... I asked that question, but I'm not even actually that interested, really. <laughs> I wasn't going to continue. I mean, main <laughs> interest in one sentence. This is this is the part of the pod where Amy and I just let it all hang out for a little bit. Yeah, where Hunter does not show appreciation for my cat. No, it's very rude. Oh, Cleo's. Oh, I've enjoyed Cleo. <laughs> I'm surprised that you haven't, um, in this lockdown era, I'm surprised you haven't asked for it to be two shrinks and a, <laughs> and a cat pod. No, I do call her the pod cat. Oh, she just yawned. Yep. <laughs> Did you want to tell people about where, 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 
I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, it's my turn, isn't it? Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, we hope you do enjoy this. If you've got any questions, comments about the show, email us, contact us, twoshrinkspod.gmail.com or on Twitter. We do really like hearing from people. And uh, if you want us to expand on anything, <laughs> we talk no, way too long tonight. Not expandable. Anyway, um, but yeah, we do uh, enjoy the show. Let's go to things we came across. Let's just let's keep it short and sweet. The segment of the show where we just talk about whatever it is that we stumbled across in the week or got completely fixated on and needed to know the reason why. This one was a mixture of two things. You know, I was looking for something else and then found this. Have you ever cried? Crying. Yes. Crying while driving. Yes. Have you ever cried, Amy? Oh, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I love a good cry. <laughs> Especially if it's nighttime. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, it's good. What would be your choice of music for a, for a nighttime drive and 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 a, and a, and a bit of a teary after a, well, a difficult interaction or or day or something like I, that? I I certainly do not have a Spotify playlist. So. <laughs> no. Bit of Jeff Buckley getting on that, or I definitely don't have. I definitely don't have that that I built up myself that fits both sad baths and sad drives. It's not a thing. <laughs> what are we? What are we, what? Uh, like, what bit of Tracy Chapman? What are, what are we thinking? Yeah, there's a there's a particular um, Miles Davis song that makes me teary every time. That's that's on there. Um, let's see. We'll open up the Criving playlist. <laughs> Actually, no, it's too revealing. No, give me one. River, Leon Bridges. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that would that would do it for me. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah look, there's a few. <laughs> My choice this evening comes out of I Have a Bone to Pick with the authors of this article. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by John in 2016, International Journal of Human-Computer Interaction. Mm-hmm. And it's called Don't Cry While Driving. Sad driving is as bad as angry driving. Yep. I disagree with this right from the title. <laughs> as you know, I, I enjoy driving. So the basic idea of this is that we know that road rage is a problem and that people often drive more erratically when they're angry. These guys wanted to know whether, whether you drive worse when you were sad. So apparently there's some sort of phenomenon known as the sadder but wiser phenomenon, which... I hadn't heard of. Have you heard of that? That essentially you're sad, but you process things in more depth. You look at the details. You kind of focus on the little things rather than the broad picture information when you're sad. There's some debate about it and quite a judgmental quote that was in the article was that sad people are not wiser, but more prone to self-attributions of incompetence, which I felt personally attacked by. But Given that sadness is usually you're quite passive and kind of resigned, they thought that it might get in the way of your reaction time and attention. What they did was that they got undergrad students to write about either their angriest or their saddest experience, and then the control group just had to write like the mundane details of what they did the day before in chronological order. After they wrote it, they had to drive in a driving simulator on a bunch of different conditions, as they would in the real world. So the idea was just drive as you normally would, see what happens. Basically what they found was that there weren't differences in driving behavior across the board except for one thing which was that both angry and sad people tend to be more risky in their driving. They speed more and they 
floor the accelerator more yep. than people who are just feeling nothing. What was weird to me, though, was that even though people were speeding, they took longer than people in the regular condition to complete the drives. So they were, I think they were more erratic. Yeah. So And they took longer, say, to take off from stationary was how I took it because it's sort of the drive had things like stop at a stop sign, give way, <laughs> a whole bunch of different conditions. So it doesn't necessarily speed you up when you're Yeah, because I guess it's like if you're upset or angry, I would say angry, sad, mm. both of those are upset. And then I guess you are more internally focused mm. and less sort of attentive to what's going on. And so that would make sort of sense. And then that would, and also I think, you know, there might be that catharsis around like flooring it, you know, mm. or just like, you know, if you're really upset, you might just, you might just like not care as much about stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And they definitely weren't intending this to be the um, motto of their article or like the meaning of their article. But what I took it to mean was you can cry if you want to, you just have to watch your speed. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I took from it. That's it. That's it. Yep. yep, that's it. I was making dessert tonight and then so I punched that into search engine to have a look. In amongst all the stuff around, does reducing your serving size change things and make you sad? <laughs> cry on the way home and go get an extra chocolate sundae at Macus. But I came across this study. Look, I haven't read this in detail i'll explain why in just a second but it's it's a very impressively written uh, paper by emily wright and clayton kreichter one's from stanford and one's from uh, university of california in berkeley and uh, it's in the journal of personality and social psychology attitude Mm -hmm. and social cognition so uh jpsp is a (laughs) it's a pretty it's a pretty good journal Uh, as 2020 Mm. so this is called the commonness fallacy Commonly chosen options have less choice appeal than people think. So in predicting... So if we went to a restaurant or something mm. and the option for dessert was vanilla or vanilla ice cream or tiramisu, mm. what do you reckon I'd go? Tiramisu. Yeah, that's, I think it's because you know me. The, yeah. In predicting what others are likely to choose, so e.g. vanilla ice cream or tiramisu, people can display a commonness fallacy, overestimating how often common but bland options, vanilla ice cream, will be chosen over rarer but exciting options, tiramisu. Mm. So given common items are often chosen merely because they're frequently offered, not because they're preferred, so tiramisu is rarely offered as dessert, commonness is not necessarily diagnostic of future choice. So they did a study or studies I should say into this thing. Do you want to, do you want to take a guess? This is why <laughs> this paper is impressive. Do you want to take a guess at how many studies they did in this paper? Just. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's rare to see a paper with more than three studies. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, because you seem tickled by it, <laughs> yep. I'm going to go seven. <laughs> they did seven. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. There's the most studies I've ever seen in a paper. So that's so in the scrambling post, post making the pineapple upside down pudding, and between the time we started recording, look, I, the conclusion. I, <laughs> look, the conclusion was long as well. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, you know, takeaway? Basically, that if you are wanting to predict 
what people are going to choose Mm -hmm. you might be better to reframe the question is what is someone more likely which would they be more likely to be pleased to receive so it's like okay reframing it will help people free forecasters from sort of an intuitive but misleading allure of commonness so basically Mm -hmm. like the idea of common things as being predictive is probably not actually that accurate and they this thing they say such reframing may help free forecasters from the intuitive but often misleading allure of commonness and spare us all many a melted scoop of vanilla ice cream along the way I like that. Yeah. And I can, I can say, I don't know, like, I don't know how this ties in with their results, but I used to work in a cinema and mm. we had some great choc top flavors and yep. we would have to like scoop the choc tops ourselves. You would run through all these flavors and they go, oh, just vanilla, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Boysenberry is yeah. the best. And you can at me about it and I, I, oh, I, no, I will fight you correct. about it. Anyway. Oh, I haven't had boysenberry ice cream for a long time. <laughs> okay, this is Two Shrinks Pod. Thanks for sticking with us. We will see you next time. See you, bye.